Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Forbes reports NATO says sabotage behind destruction of natural gas pipelines. NATO's secretary general said the leaks on the Nord Stream pipelines for sending natural gas from Russia to Europe were the result of sabotage. For insight into this, we turn to our first guest. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer and author of Disarmament in the Time of Perestroika, Arms Control in the End of the Soviet Union. He served in the Soviet Union as an inspector implementing the INF Treaty, served in General Schwarzkopf's staff during the Gulf War. And from 91 to 98, he served as the chief weapons inspector with the U.N. in Iraq. Scott Ritter, as always, Scott, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me. So discussed the sabotage on the Nord Stream pipelines with Defense Minister Morton Bodskoff, says Jen Stoltenberg. We addressed the protection of critical infrastructure in NATO countries. This seems to be a NATO member attacking a NATO member, Scott Ritter. Well, not if you ask, um, I don't know, the United States. Um, we, we seem to be convinced that it's uh, Russia attacking uh, uh, critical Russian uh, energy infrastructure, uh, the same way that Russia bombarded the Zaporizhia nuclear, nuclear power plant when it was under the control of Russia. Apparently, the Russians have suicidal tendencies. Um, and I'm, of course, being facetious here. It's uh, ridiculous to even uh, assert such a uh, possibility. But that is, of course, the uh, you know what, what's going on right now. Look, who did this? It's as plain as the nose on our face. When the President of the United States, um, in answering a, a question about Nord Stream 2 back on February 8th of this year, said that if Russian tanks cross into Ukraine, we're going to shut Nord Stream 2 down. And the reporter incredulously said, how, how could you do that? This is, this is Germany. You would be attacking Germany. He said, we'll get it done. We'll do it. Um, you know, people get convicted in American courts for far less circumstantial evidence than that. This is, this is a de facto confession. And when you um, align it with some, some very, <laughs> I would just say curious um, activity by the U.S. military. For instance, in July of this year, uh, the United States Navy carried out um, major exercises off the coast of the Danish island of Bornholm. Same place that the Nord Stream pipelines went boom, boom. Um, and, and these exercises involved you know, deep underwater operations using remotely piloted vehicles and Navy divers to do anti-mining um, exercises. But they included uh, the divers for training purposes, uh, placing explosives in the area that could be detected um, one doesn't have to have too much of a Tom Clancy type uh, imagination to see how that exercise could have had a classified annex attached to it that involved the pre-positioning of explosives on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and Nord Stream 1 pipeline that then could be remotely detonated uh, at a time and choosing of, of the United States. And the reason why I bring up time and choosing is 
uh, it appears the timing of this was was deliberate. Uh, the same day that Germany was denied uh, any potential of receiving gas from Russia through either pipeline, and we'll address that in a second, um, a, a, an alternative pipeline coming from Norway through Denmark into Poland was opened up. Uh, you know, this is going to provide Poland with, um, you know, Norwegian gas. Uh, and, and I just don't think there's a coincidence there. Uh, and, and, and the other thing that's not coincidental is the demonstrations that were taking place in Germany in the lead up to the uh, sabotage of the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines, where, you know, significant crowds of Germans were, you know, opposing the policies of their government, saying they insist that Nord Stream 2 be turned on. And Nord Stream 2 was fully you know, fully powered up, fully pressurized. Uh, the pipeline was full of gas. All the Germans had to do is hit the open switch, and Germany provided with more than enough gas to get it through uh, the winter. And this is what the uh, German civilians were saying they wanted. They were demanding it. By blowing up this pipeline, the United States was basically taking that option off the table, just in case democracy prevailed in Germany and elected officials actually responded to the stated needs and desires of their constituents. You know, Scott, a couple of things I'd like to throw together real quick and get your thoughts. Ursula von der Leyen saying, you know, we have ways of acting if, uh, you know, addressing it if Italy doesn't vote in the way we want them to vote. Angelina Baerbach in Germany saying, yeah, we don't care what the voters think. We're going to do what we want, et cetera. Okay. And now we see uh, something that makes it appear that Germany is a prisoner of um, NATO rather than, in fact, a member of NATO. It appears that the NATO EU has turned into this authoritarian beast that basically attacks and disciplines harshly members of NATO. It seems to me you're safer being outside of NATO than you're in NATO, than being in NATO. Your thoughts, Scott? No, you're 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 right. Um, I mean, it's it, NATO and the EU. They're they're pretty much one and the same. One is the economic arm of Europe. The other is the military arm of Europe, both are under the direct control of the United States, even though Europeans would be aghast at the notion, uh, you know, sovereign Europe. There is no sovereign Europe. If there was a sovereign Europe, uh, we would have a, a collective decision made by Europe to declare war against the United States for the overt uh, act of war that has been carried out by the United States against Europe, blowing up a $12 billion piece of critical energy infrastructure uh, that was funded you know, by a, a European uh, conglomerate, uh, headquarters in Switzerland. Yes, fifty-one percent of the uh, of the ownership was Gazprom, but forty-nine percent were owned by Europe, Europeans. A uh, significant investment designed to, you know, ensure that. Oh, I don't know. Let's say major industrial uh, companies in Germany didn't weren't forced to shut down uh, because of high energy prices. Uh, that. You know, supply chains weren't disrupted because of high energy prices, that people didn't suffer because of a lack of uh, heating. Um, you know, that's why the, con the, the, con the conglomerate built Nord Stream 2, to, to ensure, to provide energy security for Europe and Germany. Um, and the United States has literally uh, slit the throat of the Germans. This winter is more than likely going to be a very difficult winter, and now there is no safety outlet. The only options the Germans have now is to bankrupt themselves further by buying extraordinarily expensive uh, liquid natural gas provided by, I don't know who, the United States. 
I mean, if you can't see what's going on here, you're willfully blind. But in terms of this particular winter, if my memory serves me correctly, Europe, they don't have the terminals built to be able to accept the LNG from the United States. Aren't those still under construction? So it even if they started shipping LNG over there, they don't have the way to get it off the boats. No, you're, you're absolutely correct. But uh, the United States has been putting pressure on Europe to invest billions of dollars into into you know constructing uh this lng specific um you know terminal technology terminal infrastructure uh but it, it's always been you know like in every situation in governments uh when you're allocating resources uh you know germany kept saying well why do we want to invest billions of dollars to build infrastructure for the importation of gas which will cost twice as much as the gas we're currently getting from our previous investment into infrastructure from Russia, which is cheaper, uh, comes in greater quantities, uh, helps us out much better. This is why in 2019, uh, the German parliament, and the German government rejected the pressure of the United States and said, no, it's in our strategic interest to not only keep Nord Stream 1 functioning, but to build and complete Nord Stream 2. Um, you know, the United States has been irritated by Germany's relationship with Russia in terms of gas for many years now. I mean, this, this you know, Obama was irritated about it. Trump was irritated about it. Um, and, of course, Biden threatened to destroy it. And it appears he's carried out that threat. It certainly appears to I, I would think you've been around um, Europe. You've been around the, the halls of power. I would think that now there are some, while they don't have the horsepower or, you know, God forbid the guts to stand up to the U.S., I would think there's some very serious conversations going on in some of the back channels and halls of power in Europe right now regarding this and regarding the position that they find themselves in of total, it's Jonestown, you know, it's mass su economic suicide going on, and now they're attacked by the U.S. I would imagine there are serious conversations going on about this. Your thoughts, Scott? I would hope so. I would also hope that the Germans would uh, take their uh, Navy and uh, go investigate uh, this pipeline. I will tell you right now with 100 percent uh, certainty that I could carry out a forensic-based investigation that would prove exactly who did this. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to do. Uh, first of all, you prove that it wasn't an accident. You prove by looking at the you know, the, the, the damage done, that it was done by explosive force. And then you collect enough samples uh, to determine what the device was. You find out what explosive was used and you can trace, you know, explosives have fingerprints and you can trace them back. You know this, Garland. Yeah, you know I know it all. How to, how to, so, you know, this is, this is easily done. Um, uh, even if the United States tries to hide its fingerprints by using explosive source from someone else, there's always a clue, uh, as you know. These narcissistic bombers always do. They leave a little bit of twist of wire in the bomb that gives them their signature. Uh, there'll be something there that says "Made in the USA," um, and and but they're not going to do that. I mean, we're going to see. And Russia's calling for you know a, a, a United Nations Security Council meeting in on Friday to address just this issue uh, and to demand an investigation into this. But I think you're going to see people running as far away 
I mean, the only time I've seen people run further away from an investigation is after Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein hung himself, and nobody wanted to touch that one. And I think that's what's happening here. Everybody knows what happened, but nobody wants to investigate it because the, you know, the, the, the conclusion will be inconvenient to everybody except Russia. But, you know, Russia's acknowledged that they have paid a heavy price. This pipeline, which is massive, was fully pressurized. And all of that gas, literally billions of dollars worth of gas, is, is, is gone. It's, being, it's bubbling up to the surface, which, by the way, in the green, friendly economy of Europe, I mean, imagine that. The United States, Mr., you know, we're taking the lead in the world for, you know, <laughs> carbon emission reduction and reducing greenhouse gases and all that. We just blew up a damn pipeline, and we're pumping all that, you know, uh, carbon into the atmosphere, a tremendous amount of it. Um, the hypocrisy of this is, is stunning. I, I mean, there's nothing. The only way you can explain this is this was America panicking. Because I think mm. right now, Washington, D.C. is watching what happened in Italy with the election of, um, of, 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 the, of, the, of the lady right-winger um, who is <laughs> talking about leaving um, uh, Giordana uh, Maloney talking about leaving the European Union, uh, mm -hmm. dumping the Eurozone, um, and recognizing that this is just the beginning of a trend that's going to rapidly replicate itself across Europe, more than likely in Germany in the near future as the German people start to manifest their anger uh, in demonstrations. I mean, next month, the Germans are putting troops in the street mm -hmm. to suppress this. That won't work. Germany is going to fall. And I think Biden was briefed by you know, his wonderful national security team, Jake Sullivan and the rest, that we have to take the option of turning Nord Stream 2 off the table. Okay. Because otherwise, left to their own devices, Germany would have done just that. Turn it on. Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Explosions cause major damage to both Nord Stream pipelines. A Polish member of European Parliament suggested the United States is responsible. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a Moscow-based international relations and security analyst, Mark Schloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the critical hour. So European officials yesterday said massive leaks in the Nord Stream natural gas pipelines that were caused by explosions were likely the result of sabotage, raising questions on who the culprit might be. The Guardian reported, quote, amid the claims of sabotage, suspicion immediately turned to potential culprits with fingers pointed at Russia. Mark. Help me understand why Russia would blow up its own pipelines. Because they're evil. Oh. Oh, I, that's okay. I would okay. think that that's, 
I would think that that's obvious. I mean, we've seen a general pattern towards this trend uh, since, uh, <laughs> well, actually the very beginning of the conflict in 2014. The, the uh, people of East Ukraine, the so-called pro-Russian separatists, um, according to the Western media, um, repeating what the Kiev regime says, have been shelling themselves in their own cities, their own children for the last eight years. We know uh, from the Kiev regime, uh, which Western mainstream media uh, also dutifully uh, uh, stenographed, I mean reported, that uh, Russian forces were shelling themselves inside the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant for months uh, before they were forced to shut it down because they were shelling themselves. Um, we have heard that Russia has uh, been uh, Russian forces have been shelling res Russian territory in the Belgorod region, um, uh, uh, attacking residential settlements and um, taking out electricity. Uh, so this is this is just one more in a long string of pattern. I mean, it was quite obvious that 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 Daria Dugan killed herself with a uh, car bomb explosion. Uh, she she planted a a car bomb underneath her own car. Um, uh, luckily, well, all, there was obviously a young Ukrainian woman affiliated with Azov and the SBU who was monitoring her, who possibly could have saved her, but unfortunately did not. You're a security analyst. Are you familiar with the Australian-made boomerang shell? Because I, <laughs> I hear that's what they're that's what they're using. They're shooting themselves with the boomerang shell. It's it's a strange natural characteristic, according to the Western <laughs> mainstream media, uh, that Russians continually shell and kill themselves, presumably, uh, you know, out of desperation and despair that they were born Russian. Um, I mean, this is what the mainstream media would have you believe. And the latest one is that they have destroyed their own $30 billion <laughs> pipe. Or that's just the latest one. The, the first one, uh, you know, add, add another, uh, um, uh, you know, I don't know the exact price of Nord Stream 1 off the top of my head, but I think we could assume that it, we, it would at least double uh, the price. Uh, after fighting for years to get it done under intense pressure from the United States and sanctions, uh, if Russia wanted to shut off uh, gas, uh, you know, to Germany rather than just, you know, say closing the valve. Uh, they they obviously detonated their own pipeline, and you know, um, it, it's just a complete coincidence that uh, Victoria Newland uh, on the 28th of January said, uh, if Russia invades Ukraine one way or another. Nord Stream 2 will not move forward. Um, and it's just a complete coincidence that on February 7th, uh, Joe Biden uh, uh, repeated uh, that if Russia uh, invades Ukraine, Nord Stream 2 uh, will cease to exist, uh, uh, essentially. Uh, and when a reporter asked him, well, how, how could that happen uh, if um, uh, it's, a, you know, a, a German project, you know, uh, you know, controlled by the German, con uh, you know, government. And he says, don't worry, uh, um, we have the means to do it. I mean, that that's just a complete coincidence. And I he mean, was standing he was standing next to Olaf Schultz when he said it. Yes. It's also a complete coincidence. <laughs> See, all of the these three pipeline explosions that occurred on uh, the two branches of Nord Stream 1 and the branch of Nord Stream 2 all curled in a relatively shallow area of the Baltic Sea that they pass through, very close 
to the Danish island of Bornholm. Um, and it is a complete coincidence that um, in April of this year, according to the Danish press, uh, uh, the local, um, that uh, Danish Prime Minister rebukes Russian ambassador over Bornholm comments. It seems that Russia noticed that the, the U.S. was stationing troops on that island. Right. Mm. Where right. Uh, 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 a couple dozen kilometers away from where this happened. Um, and Russia, you know, drew this attention, uh, you know, and they were uncomfortable about it. And uh, the uh, Danish prime minister uh, told them it was none of their business. And it's also just a coincidence that the U.S. Navy just finished uh, naval drills um, just in that area, just a, a dozen kilometers away, just a few days ago, um, uh, you know, so uh, quite clearly they didn't plant any explosives uh, on these pipelines. And it has to be said that these pipelines, I mean, these are not the pipelines that go into your house, right? This is uh, um, uh, a, a, a 1.4, 1.6 meter thick steel, then surrounded by concrete reinforced or steel reinforced concrete. Um, you know, uh, station at the bed, they're meant to survive earthquakes and the like. Um, uh, these seismologists um, from uh, both Sweden and Denmark uh, have noted that, uh, you know, they, they, they say there were explosions uh, around the time that these pipelines went up. So all of this is just just complete coincidence. And the Russians must have done it themselves because the Russians do everything, including to themselves. You know, uh, I'm just wondering when they find out that the U.S. did it, will that trigger an Article 5 response? That's going to be a tough one to figure out. Uh, that one has me confused. But at any rate, here's I, some- I, yeah, yeah, I, I might, might be confused. I, I have a better one for you. I, I whether our NATO actually triggers Article 5 or like the Lickspittle client states they are, they say, thank you, sir. May I please have another pipeline blown up by you. Um, the it, it is a definite act of war by the United States on Russia. Yeah. Well, uh, didn't uh, Ursula von der Leyen just said the other day, we have tools. We got tools. That's one of their tools. From now on, when the U.S. says anything to any countries in in uh, in the United States, I mean, excuse me, any of their colonies in Europe, it goes unsaid that 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 is added to the end of that. And if you don't, we'll blow up your infrastructure. From now on, just take that as an axiomatic statement. Let me ask you this, and I, and I want to hear this being a security analyst. There's something going on here, Mark, because there are bombs. I mean, there's wars all over the place, Afghanistan, blah, blah, blah. But there's an unwritten rule. You don't touch the pipelines. Wars all Afghanistan. Nobody blows up pipelines. Nobody touches that energy infrastructure that goes around. If I'm one of the en- energy producing countries in the world right now, I'm very concerned because, I mean, the war is going on in Ukraine. Russia never blew up the pipeline. People don't blow up the pipelines. 20 years in Afghanistan, we never blew up a pipeline. It's like they're opening a new front. They're introducing something new to the world. That is, we will attack your infrastructure and pipelines. And if I'm a country that creates energy, I'm very concerned that whoever, the U.S., did this, then they're introducing this into a, a new dynamic that is very, very unfortunate. Your thoughts, Mark? Yeah, actually, there is precedent for this. Um, so um, it was, um, I believe, um, not too long ago, um, I, I, was it a year or two, that Sweden was actually 
doing uh, surveying, checking the structure of uh, Nord Stream that was running through their territory. And they found an underwater drone packed with explosives that was parked right up next to the pipeline. Uh, not very well reported in, in the Western media. Uh, they they quietly removed it and it was reported on and forgotten. So, I mean, there's an incident there. We also know that um, during the Soviet Union, uh, when the Soviet Union was around in the 1980s, um, and the Soviet Union was acquiring components for the pipeline, uh, shall we say surreptitiously, uh, from Canada. The U.S. found out about this and deliberately um, replaced the parts that were sent uh, with defective parts uh, that were trained to, uh, um, well, destroy themselves and the pipeline. Um, and this resulted in the destruction of a major oil pipeline uh, across the Soviet Union, um, which um, it, the fire was so large that it was visible from space. Uh, so. This type of, of sabotage of pipelines actually has precedent with the United States, of course. You mentioned that this is an act of war, and Garland jokingly mentioned Article 5. So to the point, what happens when, in a, when a, a NATO country finds another NATO country blew up its own, blew up its own pipeline? But to the, to the point of, of an act of war, uh, do you have any— speculation on what the response to this might be from Russia, let alone, I, I seriously doubt we'll hear, we'll, that we'll hear anything from Germany, but, but from Russia. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, I don't expect, I don't expect Germany to acknowledge this. I mean, even though it is perfectly obvious to all of them, they, they are such you know, uh, sovereignty less, independence less, um, uh, quizzlings to their own country that they can't even acknowledge the obvious. Um, they will just suck it up. And I mean, I mean, I, I, I'm old enough to remember just a few years ago when Angela Merkel's phone was being yeah, bugged right, uh, right. by Barack Obama. And what was it? You know, it was just like, uh, mm, huh? Um, what? I don't know. Um, um, can I have some more tea, please, I, or beer, or wh whatever Angela Merkel drinks? I don't know. Um, so um, that was completely ignored. Um, we have seen actually Denmark uh, notice the close proximity here, um, being caught by other EU countries helping the U.S. to spy on other EU countries uh, in the last two years. That was all quietly uh, washed away. We've had uh, information that the U.S. Uh, was uh, uh, directly um, involved in the French elections uh, over the last year with uh, the CIA uh, over the last couple of years. And, and that was quietly ignored and washed away. So, I mean, why why would this be any different. I, th I think we've already seen several incidences uh, being denied uh, by uh, the European powers, uh, you know, in this conflict thus far, things that directly affect them. So it's no, no different. I presume that this is a direct response uh, to uh, Russia holding the referendums uh, in uh, Donetsk, Lugansk, Kherson, uh, and Zaporozhye. I, I take it that this is the U.S. escalation of the response. It's something that they almost certainly had already had planned and ready to go, 
uh, uh, you know, within a, a certain escalatory framework. And they decided now that that was the time to do it. Uh, and so it, it was done. How Russia will respond, I don't really know. We already know that the Russian government um, it has called for an emergency meeting of the Security Council to discuss this, but I don't think that's going to go anywhere. But the Russian government has been very keen not to try to escalate this to the point of a direct conflict with NATO because of the world ending possibilities. Um, you know, they constantly are saying the U.S. is at risk of becoming a party uh, to the conflict. The U.S., of course, is already a party to the conflict, as are all the European powers. Uh, but to acknowledge that would, would, you know, be to invite World War Three. So I think at this point, because Europe had already said they will do without those pipelines. The Kremlin will probably more or less write it off um, mm. as a mistake, an extremely expensive one, and move on. But that being said, it can't help but notice that on the very same day after this, a new Norwegian-Polish pipeline was uh, opened up uh, carrying gas from uh, – uh, Norway to Poland. And if the Kremlin was more, shall we say, of a retaliatory, hot-headed nature like me. Um, <laughs> and me. They, they, don't they don't stand by the pipeline. That it, they could say that that is a quid pro quo target and that now pipelines everywhere are fair game uh, in what is obviously a NATO-Russia uh, mm. conflict. Okay. Uh, but – I think probably the Kremlin is a little more restrained than than uh, hawks like me would be in such circumstances. Mark Schlaboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Anglo-American Axis benefits from the ecological terrorist attack in the Baltic Sea. This terrorist attack destroyed any chance of any energy-driven Russian-German rapprochement, immediately catapulted Poland into the position of being one of the continent's most pivotal energy hubs, and thus took the Anglo-Americans' Axis plans for dividing and ruling Europe to the next level. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an investigative journalist, author of three books, The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup, and America's Undeclared War. Dan Lazar. As always, Dan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So the unprecedented damage done to the Nord Stream pipelines Monday night was certainly an act of sabotage, exactly as Denmark, Germany, Poland, and Russia suspect, though nobody can agree on who carried out this ecological terrorist attack in the Baltic Sea. Dan, other than a false flag operation, can you give me any reason why Russia would blow up its own pipelines when it already has the leverage it needs to accomplish its goals? For example, why blow up the pipeline to cut off this flow of gas when Siemens won't send back the turbines that you need to get the pipeline up? I mean, it just doesn't make sense, Dan Lazar. 
No, it makes zero sense at all. I mean, I mean if, if Russia wants you know, to, to cut off the supply of gas, all Russia has to do is, is flick a switch, more or less. It owns the pipeline. It controls the pipeline. Therefore, it can turn it off or turn it on as it sees fit. There is simply no reason to send some kind of submersible you know, drone or, or watercraft or anything like that you know, into two to 300 feet of water you know, in international waters, uh, running you know, itself a highly risk, politically risky operation to accomplish the same end. The idea is absurd. Um, it, it can't have been the Ukraine because the Ukraine lacks the technical, uh, technological capability. It's also far away. Um, and uh, and thirdly, we have the we have two important bits of data. One is that. Uh, when uh, when there were um, uh, fears of a uh, some kind of Russian military intervention, uh, Joe Biden declared at a press conference, "quote If Russia invades, then there will no longer be a Nord Stream two pipeline." When a reporter asked him how that would happen, uh, Biden says, "I promise you, we'll be able to do it." The second data bit is from uh, Radek Sikorsky, uh, former uh, Polish foreign minister, who who uh, who tweeted a picture of uh, of the the spreading methane blob from the explosion um, in the in the in the Baltic Sea with the inscription "Thank you, USA." Radek is not just any ordinary East European politician. He's a uh, he's a scholar. He's now he's out of power, but he's now a scholar at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington D.C., a very very prominent think tank, and he's also the husband of Ann Applebaum, uh, a a Washington Post uh, columnist and a extremely prominent uh, neocon who is um, very well connected to neocon circles in Washington. So that makes Radek Sikorsky a very well-connected guy. You put those two facts together, uh, the, you, know, you put all the facts together that Russia lacks anything you know, like, a, like, a, like a motive, uh, the Ukraine lacks the technological capability, and then you have Biden's statement at that press conference and Radek's tweet you have a very strong prima facie case that America done it. So here's the question, I think, too, because what you have now is you have some level of um, uh, pushback going on in Europe. You see, you know, some the elections in Sweden, elections in Italy. We see, you know, Hungary. We see some fracturing, some fissures appearing in the European, um, you know, on the European continent. Um, how does this affect that dynamic in that there's, look, nobody, no reasonable person is going to think that Russia did it. So when they try, of course, we know what they're going to do. They're going to say, sure, Russia did it. And everyone is going to say, yeah, I'll go along with that. But everyone's going to know the truth. Does this have an effect? We certainly know Germany, you know, they aren't going to do anything for God's sake. They they tapped uh, Angela Merkel's, Merkel's phone and they didn't say a word. Do you think this, this, even though it may not be spoken in public, this affects the dynamics 
of support for the U.S. in the Ukraine uh, crisis and further? Profoundly. It has a profound impact. Look, I mean, a, a few idiot politicians will snap to attention, you know, and and you know, and dutifully repeat the U.S. line that Russia did it. But they're going to be very few. And this is something out there called public opinion. And the average man or woman on the street is going to be able to put two plus two together, you know, to make four. And we'll fig- figure out very class, you know, fast that Russia has no motive. And, you know, and, and only the U.S. has the capability and and the desire, no, and and the stated desire to attack this facility. Um, But, you know, the only reason for caution, uh, and this is a a very important reason, is that this amounts to such a bold and radical attack on the economic interests of America's European allies that you have to wonder, you know, you know, are 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 the are is the Biden administration really so bold, really so radical as to pull up a stunt like that? Was there some kind of you know errant CIA mission involved, um, or uh, you know, or does really does 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 Biden really want to sink sink the German economy so that all that manufacturing flows to the U.S.? I mean, it's. It's absolutely extraordinary if that's the case, but one can't ha- help but wonder, you know, based on very conservative, very careful thinking, thought processes, that that is really what's happening. Well, let me throw another idea over the transom, and that is, does this have anything to do with the Biden administration, or are we now really getting to understand that this isn't administration policy. This is American policy. And it doesn't matter who the president is, that the elites in this country that are more concerned with financial hegemony and the financial elite are more interested in that than they are on the manufacturing or the industrial elite side. And also with that, explain what this does for Poland now being moved into the position of being a pivotal energy hub, does that help Europe solve their oncoming gas problems in Europe? No, it does not. But it does help Poland. It does reinforce Poland's uh, um, uh, role in all this. It strengthens role. It strengthens Poland's role, and it definitely solidifies the U.S.-Polish alliance. So they're probably cheering in Warsaw. Um, uh, but they're not cheering in Berlin. They're they're rubbing their hands with uh, in dismay uh, because this amounts to a declaration of war mm-hmm. uh, by the U.S. on the Schultz government. I mean, that's why. I mean, it's it's very hard to figure out what's going on here. We've got to be cautious. We've got to be careful. Mm-hmm. We've got to be really scrupulous in our in our analysis. But. But if, if, if this is the case, and it certainly looks like it is the case, then the U.S. has declared war, economic warfare against Russia. It is giving – You mean against Germany. Germany. Yeah. If it has given Germany the full bore, you know, you know uh, treatment, the same treatment it gave Russia previously. And the Germans have got to wonder, you know, what the hell is going on? What are they doing in all this? 
you know, what is the U.S. role? So it's really, you know, if you when you when you connect the dots, the the conclusions are so extraordinary that you've got to go back and 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 connect those dots again and again to see if you possibly made a mistake. Your thoughts on the first part of my question about administrative uh, U.S. foreign policy versus administration policy? Well, I, I think they, you know, there was a, there was an, there was an item in the Wall Street Journal uh, uh, last week saying that European manufacturers are actually relocating to the United States because the uh, the energy energy situation uh, is 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 more secure. Uh, the political situation is less precarious than it is in Europe these days. Um, you know, so so it's a sign that the that the that the U.S. is actually benefiting uh, from European disarray. Um, but but this, if 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 all the indications are correct here, then the U.S. is not only benefiting from U.S. from a from European disarray, it's trying to intensify it, to accelerate it. Um, and that just you know if, if that is true, I mean then, then that means that 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 Germany is not an, is not part of NATO; it's a prisoner of NATO. Yeah, Dan. I think what we're looking at now, you know, when when you add this to Ur- Ursula von der Leyen saying, you know, Italy, um, we have uh, tools, you know, if they don't vote right. When Annalena Baerbock saying, you know, I don't care what the German people do, we're going to su- want, we're going to support Ukraine. It makes it obvious NATO and the EU has turned into an authoritarian regime that spend more energy in disciplining and attacking the people in their own coalition than they do the outside. This has become like the Nazis saying the people under us will be beaten. We will continue the floggings until, you know, the old joke, until morale improves. Dan. Yeah, well, it's it, what, it's, what are the parallels like? It's like the Warsaw Pact, the old Soviet military alliance, which, as everyone knows, was, was you know, was really was directed less at the West than at dissident elements in Eastern Europe. So, so is NATO now performing an, an analogous function, where its job is 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 not so much to well, actually, it is waging war against Russia, but it's a job additionally is to wage war against dissident elements in a in a so-called U.S. allies like Germany. Well, when you're struggling to figure out why you exist, and many have said, you know, NATO's rationale. Or raison d'etre, I think would is it would be the proper term. There's no reason for it anymore. You will tend to turn on yourself, and those you you will turn inward. Yes, but this is a this is a qualitative change in U.S. Uh, European relations. If it's true, I mean, you know, I mean, what it means is that is that is that uh, Europe, uh, the European people. Uh, we'll have to see U.S. Uh, we'll have to see the U.S. and NATO in an entirely different light. They'll have to see them as an occupying force and an enemy force. So, therefore, you know, th- I mean, this is—I mean, this is ex- this is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. is why we've got to, you know, we've got to check and double check, check and triple check our, uh, our, you know, all our figures to make sure they're correct. Dan Lazar, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you so much. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. 
We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Washington Post reports, West condemns staged referendums and calls Nord Stream explosions deliberate act. Pro-Russian officials from Ukraine's Donetsk and Luhansk regions say they are heading to Moscow to make arrangements for the territory's accession to Russia. Russia concluded staged referendums in four Ukrainian regions under Russian control this week, while the explosions that damaged the Nord Stream 1 and 2 gas pipelines causing leaks into the Baltic Sea appear to be result of a deliberate act, the EU said earlier today. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a Sputnik News analyst who joins us from Moscow, Wyatt Reed. As always, Wyatt, welcome back. Thanks so much, Wilmer. Thanks for having me. So, so help me out with this language, because we've been hearing here in the West staged referendums, preordained outcome, sham referendums. I've even heard them referred to as irregular. I haven't heard anybody use the word illegal. So if you could first explain from a procedural perspective, because it all, they also make it appear as though the referendums were being held in Russia, like in Moscow. Provide some clarity here for us, please. Okay, so to be, to be fair, there, is vote, there was voting in Moscow. Uh, there was voting in a number of uh, Western cities, uh, Western Russian cities, where there are large populations of people who have to take uh, refuge. They had to seek refuge from the hostilities. We don't hear about them in Western media, but uh, the majority of those people went to Russia. They did mm-hmm. not go to, you know, to Kiev. Uh, they're going to Russia and they are voting and they voted in these referendums um, in polling stations. Uh, in Moscow, for example, I, I was at the embassy of the Donetsk People's Republic, an embassy here, uh, and that was where a lot of voting was carried out. I saw um, dozens and dozens of people vote, and the time that I was there, it was a steady stream. At least three or four people were voting at any given time while I was there. Um, but there are also, of course, uh, voting is carried out as well uh, within those, those regions. Uh, it's just more difficult to organize uh, polling locations because those locations are obviously uh, targets for uh, the Ukrainian regime. So uh, the officials were forced to kind of go door to door in some cases to uh, to offer people a chance to vote. So um, in that sense, you know, that, that that's kind of my take of how the vote has been playing out as to why somebody would refer to this as, you know, irregular, but doesn't necessarily want to use the, the word illegal. Um, I certainly am not in a position to know firsthand, um, but I have also heard speculation that uh, Anthony Blinken attempted to make a phone call with a Russian counterpart uh, that, uh, if, if that is true, you know, would sort of lend some credence to the idea that maybe the United States uh, is thinking at this point, you know, maybe we, we need to back off a second. We don't need to further antagonize Russia and, and deliberately try to start World War III. The reason that I'm bringing up irregular versus illegal is because if Anthony Blinken or Joe Biden were to say the elections were illegal, then the next question would be, well, provide us with the basis of that position. What law has been broken or what has not been followed? 
when one says irregular, well, that's incredibly subjective. And it right. could just be the fact that they don't like what's going on. So they don't like what's going on. Go, go ahead, Garland. Well, I was going to ask you this because this is my first thoughts. It's not hard for me to believe that most people in, a, in an area would vote to leave Ukraine when, in fact, right now they are actively being shelled by Ukraine and some of them are being killed. I wanted to ask you about that dynamic. And have you seen any of the areas have you, where they've been shelling? Have you talked to anybody? Have you had any experience with the ongoing attacks by the Ukrainian military on the people in eastern Ukraine? Absolutely. When I was in Kherson, uh, I was able to witness firsthand the aftermath of a HIMARS strike. That is the uh, the missiles that the United States uh, government has provided to the Kiev regime. Uh, someone died in that attack. The aftermath was horrific. Uh, an entire apartment building was basically bombed out. Uh, there was a crater about uh, 20 feet wide that, uh, you know, and, and about 10 feet deep it was incredible, you know, the, the devastation that that wrought on that area. Um, and also, you know, in that area, I was able to see just driving. Um, we, we were uh, in a van that we, we were able to be taken to, uh, to see some of the people uh, getting, to, getting a chance to vote and to see some of the devastation. Um, and we had to be accompanied by Russian special forces, by Spetsnaz, um, because that is how dangerous the situation is. And you could see just on, on the drive, off in the distance, you can see smoke from artillery strikes. Uh, we were able to see a pair of Sukhoi fighter jets that were either on a reconnaissance mission or on a bombing run. And, uh, you know, this is certainly the case where uh, the hostilities are ongoing. Um, it is a hot, hot uh, situation, and... Uh, you know, I think it's likely that it's going to heat up significantly more in the coming days. Were you able to tell from where you were, with, where the high Mars strike was, what any of the targets might have been? Understanding, of course, they were probably obliterated and vaporized. But were you able to ga- was, gain any? It was an apartment building. It was it was houses. It was houses that had been smashed apart, and small market stalls in an apartment building. Hmm. Um, they, you know, there was no. No military target that I was able to perceive in that region. Um, so to me, it, it seemed like a strike on civilians. That's certainly, you know, that, uh, the the victim that uh, we were told about was uh, described as a civilian, and that's uh, certainly the dynamic that I, I would imagine is contributing to this uh, turnout, where we've got, um, you know. 80 to 90 percent, upper 80s and lower 90 percent of those who are uh, able to come out and vote are supporting realigning themselves with the Russian Federation. So uh, the infamous act now of uh, sabotage on the Nord Stream um, pipeline, um, you're around, uh, you're in Russia, you're in eastern Ukraine um, or formerly eastern Ukraine. Are you hearing any discussion on it? What are your thoughts? Well, I think. Pretty much everybody at this point assumes that this was uh, something carried out by the United States, that the millions of, of gallons of methane that are being pumped directly uh, into the ocean now, that that was something that the United States carried out. That certainly uh, they are the main beneficiary of any uh, consequences of this. Um, Germany is now long, no longer able, even if it wanted to, to turn the gas back on. Uh, to get uh, its its Russian uh, gas supplies restored. 
the day before that explosion, thousands of Germans took to the streets of Berlin to demand that the government do exactly that. But now uh, they simply cannot. Uh, now, uh, you know, the same day, obviously, that a new gas line going through Poland gets inaugurated, this, uh, you know, several multiple explosions on both pipelines at the same time, uh, you know, it really, it really, the, the question to me is obviously qui bono, who benefits, and it's certainly not Russia. What is the sense, or have you been able to get a sense from just folks on the ground and on the street around your hotel or any place that you've been able to uh, to get around to? Is there outrage? Is there anger? Are people calling for uh, retaliation? Or are they just saying, well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with this at another time? Well, I, I think, you know, the sense that I've gotten from people is just, <laughs> the German government is not willing to fight for this. I mean, when when Joe Biden publicly threatened to do uh, what appears to have happened uh, several days ago in February, when he uh, publicly announced that uh, there will be no Nord Stream two if uh, if uh, Russia quote unquote invades Ukraine, um, and then you know a reporter obviously asked him. A follow-up question, uh, isn't that a question for Germany? What do you mean? How can you say that? He said, there will be no uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Uh, we will put an end to it. So, you know, the the language here, it's, it's very clear that um, this is something that the United States uh, was wishing would happen, um, but there wasn't much desire from the German government to operate this pipeline anyway. So, it's, you know, it's... <laughs> kind of uh, the kind of thing, well, if they're not willing to fight for it, why is, is Russia going to fight as hard for it? Um, I mean, uh, I, I should actually note on, uh, on a slightly different note that uh, these referendums that we're witnessing right now, I mean, the timing of all of this is just incredible, right? That all of this kind of happens in the same week, the referendums, the pipeline explosion, the 300,000 reservists being called up. We're seeing... Uh, you know, to me, it's, it's very difficult not to interpret the pipeline explosions, the, the deliberate sabotage, as uh, multiple, as the European Union uh, has declared, as Germany has declared, as Denmark has declared, deliberate sabotage. Uh, the timing there is really, uh, it's, it's almost, you know, it, 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 it beggars belief. Um, and, of course, you know, I should also mention what's happening now with those of us who dared to come observe these elections. Uh, I found out today that I've been put on a list by the so-called Ukrainian Human Rights Commissioner, um, who has uh, labeled, labeled me as, a, uh, as an enemy of Ukraine. He's calling for me to be jailed when I return to the U.S., and he wants me to be banned from Western Europe. He wants all of us to be banned from Western Europe and jailed. Uh, we've, we've had a uh, number of members of this uh, delegation, one of them was fired from his job as an executive in an energy company in Germany for participating in electoral observation. Uh, I just noticed I had a hit piece that was published that uh, uh, attempts to disparage me in CNN uh, yesterday. They uh, <laughs> go very far out of their way to uh, to deny that I am a journalist and uh Basically, I think that the language they use is a so-called expert um, meant to lend 
fake legitimacy to an election. Uh, and there are uh, other other lists even being published that uh, we seem to be on. Uh, calls throughout uh, Ukrainian society, the uh, so-called Ukrainian, um, the Ministry of Reintegration of the Temporarily Occupied Territories of Ukraine, published a an open letter, a, a document saying that in addition to the names uh, to the name list of all the participants of this crime, the crime being um, voting election, yeah, voting the Ukraine the the Ukrainian authorities also have the exact addresses of all the pseudo-precincts, the number of pseudo-voters attached to them, the detailed routes that the occupiers are going to take to collect votes, and even the numbers of their cars and the data of their drivers. They say, we appeal to foreigners, all those who dare to indulge criminals become criminals themselves. You cannot avoid responsibility. Hmm. So this is kind of the attitude that we have been received with on the part uh, the Ukrainian regime, um, in very stark contrast to how we've been received here uh, by average people who are thrilled that someone from abroad is coming over to see for the first time what's happening, what they've been going through for eight years. Um, you know, I, I think with these lists, we're kind of getting a very small taste of exactly what they've been going through for so long. Wyatt Reed, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate that analysis. Uh, stay safe, and we look forward to having you back. Absolutely. Appreciate it, guys. Folks, you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Nine dead in Iranian attacks on Kurdish rebels in northern Iraq. The attacks come after protests have rocked Iran for the past 11 days, particularly the country's western Kurdistan province near the Iraqi border. What are we to make of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, analyst, and award-winning journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Iran has attacked an Iranian Kurdish opposition group in the Kurdish Kurdish region of northern Iraq, killing nine people and injuring several others. Kurdish officials have said the missile and drone attacks today focused on bases in Koya, east of Erbil, and the group known as uh, the KDPI is under attack. What's going on here, Laith? And this is uh, day five, I believe, of of, uh, of these activities. Yes, this is day five of uh, the Iranian uh, land and uh, air forces uh, attacking positions of uh, Kurdish uh, militias inside Iraq, uh, specifically, as you mentioned, this one party, but also there's uh, three or other four uh, militias that they have uh, hit their bases. This is the closest uh, in the five days that the uh, guided missiles and drones of Iran uh, hit, uh, you know, geographically to the capital of Kurdistan, Iraq, Erbil. So this this hit that you mentioned was uh, just outside in the suburbs of Erbil, 
Uh, and, you know, listeners should remember that Iran for the last uh, couple of years has been warning Kurdistan, uh, Iraq uh, administration um, because of the presence of uh, both Israeli Mossad and uh, multiple uh, militias that are uh, secessionists inside Iran that are active now in Kurdistan, Iraq. Uh, this, you know, you know, brings up the heat between the the two uh, parties, uh, and it, it clearly is going to affect Iraq uh, because, you know, as we know, Iraq is in chaos right now without any government. So how does this affect, you know, I know you got a couple of things going on here, some odd things. The U.S. has supported the Kurds mostly. Turkey as is as at odds with the Kurds. And then you have the Iraqi government unable to really, um, you know, to really get a firm hold right now as to who's in charge. How do all of these dynamics play in? It's, it's funny because there was within a few hours of that Iranian attack on, on Kurdistan, Iraq, there was a uh, aerial attack by the Turkish uh, Air Force on the north of Iraq, again, on what they call uh, Kurdish uh, separatist uh, militias. And so we see, uh, you know, the government, uh, federal government of Iraq is uh, totally, uh, you know, useless. It, it has no control over its territory. Both its uh, major neighbors, Iraq, Iran, and and Turkey, are uh, you, you know shelling its territory. The Americans are still occupying. Uh, there's demonstrations as we speak right now in Baghdad, where uh, you know demonstrators have taken over the bridges into the green zone. Uh, with a, uh, they even brought in a uh, front hoe to push away the the cement barricades. So the country is in chaos. Uh, and the United States is taking full advantage of uh, this reality and uh, intervening in Iran through the territory of Iraq. Uh, and I don't know what, what is the exit uh, strategy for Iraq from this chaos, but uh, it, it doesn't seem like there's anybody that has an exit strategy. When you say the country is in chaos, can, can you uh, elaborate on that a little, a little more, please? Yeah, so... We know the elections now, it's uh, over three months since the elections have happened in Iraq. There hasn't uh, been a president or prime minister appointed. Uh, Al-Sadr movement is, uh, as we, as some of your listeners may remember, walked away from the parliament after getting elected and uh, caused a huge chaos that could have led to civil war. Right now, the, the Al-Sadr movement itself is fracturing because Al-Sadr, ordered all those elected under his banner not to uh, attend the parliament and uh, ordered all his uh, members uh, of his movement not to demonstrate. Uh, but we see right now demonstrations happening on the streets in, in uh, Baghdad, uh, specifically this uh, fracturing into at least four, four different factions within the Southern movement. Uh, this may be spilling the end for what we call the Southernist uh, movement in Iraq. So then is Iraq, does Iraq end up a country that's kind of like, you know, almost in Afghanistan or something, kind of an, un, an ungovernable territory with a bunch of bases in it? Uh, currently, it seems like it's going more towards the direction of Lebanon, a country that is ungovernable, uh, but somehow still <laughs> functions. And uh, until, obviously... 
you know, the main causes of all these problems in, in Western Asia are the Psycho-Spico agreement and the, and the Balfour Declaration that created uh, the Zionist colony. We haven't, these, these artificial borders make it impossible for anybody to govern any of these states or in Western Asia and or for them to develop to a stage that they can be fully sovereign. Um, none of that is going to end until uh, we revise uh, what uh, ended up happening at the end of World War One. Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman named Prime Minister. MBS, also known as Mohammed Bonesaw, is already de facto ruler of the kingdom, but the uh, appointment formalizes his role as head of the government. Uh, I guess his father, King Salman, has named him prime minister. Don't know about King Salman's faculties and if he even remembers having done that. So explain the significance of the fact that he's now prime minister of Saudi Arabia as well as the de facto ruler. Yeah, I mean, it's consolidating all the quote-unquote, official positions within the hands of uh, MBS. Uh, of course, Saudi uh, monarchy is not a democracy. Uh, if there is ever prime ministers uh, or ministers in, in important positions like foreign affairs that do not belong to the Saud family, that's an anomaly. Uh, of course, MBS has been consolidating his power within the Saud family because of the he came in uh, as a replacement to his uncle. Uh, so there is, uh, you know, kind of uh, a, a schism within the Saud family right now. The old guard uh, that of, you know, the, the generation of his father that originally the crown moves between one brother to another. And now it's the first time since the founding of the Saud dynasty that it will be a son uh, of a king that becomes his his uh, um, you know crown prince and has been his crown prince. So we see a lot of problems within the Saud family. The only reason that it's not coming out to the public these problems is because the country is so closed up, and the Western media is is covering up any of the schisms within the Saud family. Let me ask you this. The Saudis are, have made a lot of uh, interesting uh, moves lately, not the least of which being apparently they want to join like the BRICS. They're talking about joining the BRICS and the SCO. And, you know, Iran is either is a member of the SCO and tight with the BRICS company, countries. Does that imply that somewhere in the future that the Saudis are planning on some kind of detente with the Iranians, at least enough that they can get it? What do you think that does it mean anything? I mean, look, it it's just shows us indications of uh, fear within, you know, the Gulf monarchies that have been kept in power since uh, World War One by the Anglo-American alliance. Uh, it's fear that if the American Anglo empire starts uh, shrinking, that they will be facing the wrath of their populations and uh, a regional uh, you know, um, movement for unification that uh, could sweep them. So clearly they are trying to keep their uh, channels open with the rising new powers. 
But I doubt that the Saudis will ever betray the United States uh, until clearly the U.S. is uh, is exiting Western Asia, and that's not happening anytime soon. So it, it may be like, you know, on one hand, they are keeping their channels open for the emerging powers. On the other, they are, they are in, intervening to slow things down and or to uh, provide uh, information for the Americans from the inside. Israel. Prisoners Affairs Commission documents severe beating of two Palestinian children during detention. The Prisoners Affairs Commission said on Tuesday its lawyer, Hiba Salah, documented the severe beating of two Palestinian minors at the hands of Israeli forces during detention. Your thoughts? I mean, the Zionists uh, have a, you know, a tradition of uh, assaulting and uh, abusing Palestinian children. Uh, You know, they the supremacy that is uh, at the base of the Zionist uh, ideology um, makes them look at Palestinian children as as threats and treat them as adults. It's the same way that the American police treat uh, black minors and, and as if they are adults, uh, abusing them and or uh, you know charging them in in the uh, courts reserved for adults. In this situation, the Palestinian children get charged uh, within a, a, a military court, not even having any civil rights. Uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of reports have been written since 1948 about the uh, physical and sexual abuse uh, meted by the Zionist uh, forces on Palestinian children and women. Um, and uh, this is not going to change, honestly. Uh, the Zionists are not even ashamed uh, when they see these articles uh, and reports coming out. Uh, as long as there is no deterrence uh, to them, they will continue with this abuse. And uh, unfortunately for the Palestinian people, only they, as as Palestinian resistance, um, will be able to stop this abuse. Nobody's going to come to their aid. It's interesting, the description here that he was severely beaten by police, along with other youth, and then he was taken to the infamous interrogation room number four, which does not have cameras, severely beaten for two hours, and then taken to court. So two things. One, this demonstrates the complicity of the entire system, as well as this also seems to be a psychological approach Because when a family, particularly when a man can't protect his own children, then that has to impact or it is intended to impact the psyche of the father. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, the Zionists are very racist in terms of their uh, thinking of, 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 oh, can they... Can they map out the Arab mind? You know, do they can can the colonizer, uh, you know, define how the 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 native thinks? And of course, uh, as we see here, they they believe that uh, Palestinian society is a is a patriarchal society that the honor of a, of a man is is in the protection of his family, and of course. The, the constant harassment of women um, belonging to families of people who are accused of resistance and or children in this situation is is a psychological warfare factor. Uh, you know, of course, this is 
Palestinians are not the only population in the world that uh, protects their families uh, and looking at them in in such um, psychologically racist ways is is revealing. Laith Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. You too. Thank you very much. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There is more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Orinoco Tribune reports amidst the Biden administration's forever wars policy in Africa, Black Alliance for Peace launches a month of action against AFRICOM. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. She's with the Coordinating Committee of the Black Alliance for Peace, member of the Black Working Class Centered Ujima People's Progress Party in Maryland, founder of Liberation Through Reading, and co-editor of the revolutionary African blog, Hood Communist, Erica Ryan. Erica, welcome back. Hi, thank you for having me. So this coming October 1st is the 14th anniversary of the launch of the USA Africa Command, or AFRICOM. Yet jihadist terrorist violence on the continent has increased since the founding of AFRICOM and NATO's destruction of Libya, resulting in civilian casualties and instability, which the West has used as pretext and justification for the continued need for AFRICOM. Since its founding, coups carried out by AFRICOM-trained soldiers have also increased. So, Erica, the United States created this entity that it claimed it needed in order to quell jihadist violence, but it's the creation of the entity that is stimulating and motivating the violence it was created to, co- to commit, I mean, to uh, confront. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, so that's one of the things that we, we try to raise with the Black Alliance for Peace. This is our third um, year that we're doing a month of action because we really want to raise the um, the importance of, uh, despite the rhetoric, uh, the real purpose of AFRICOM is to use the U.S. military power to impose U.S. control over Africa, the resources, the labor, and then uh, the needs. Um, so there's multiple multinational corporations tied to this, and it's also uh, been a major boom for defense contractors. So as you noted, uh, for what it's supposed to be doing, there is still a lot of conflict happening on the continent. Um, most recently, uh, 500 U.S. troops in May were sent to Somalia, um, which is the latest violation of the nation's sovereignty. And um, this is the case with all U.S. interventions uh, that underlying reasons are not depraved, uh, but also indifferent to the constant suffering of African people. Um, also, uh, in July, I believe, um, June or July, uh, um, that we released uh, uh, statements around Operation African Lion uh, when the Moroccan police were beating and hog tying African migrants. Um, 
And what Operation African Lion is a military exercise in Morocco with more than 7,500 troops for Western nations, uh, which includes AFRICOM. So this is, we see AFRICOM as an extension of NATO, because as you made mention of, uh, with the coups that's happening, especially in Western Africa, uh, Guinea for one, a lot of the coup leaders have been trained by not just AFRICOM, but French military as well. So we see that um, these sort of uh, military operations and military occupations are occurring on the continent. Um, I also see that you've got a um, this month. There's a call to action. I see that you have things like a webinar and banner drops, et cetera. What is Black Alliance uh, Peace, you know, doing over this month of call for action? And what kind? Of, what kind? You know, tell us about it. What are you doing? How can people get involved? What is it you'd like to co- to accomplish? You know, you kind of get where I'm going. Yes, if you go to the website of BlackAllianceForPeace.com, we have a whole resource page that includes a toolkit where people can um, actually uh, endorse the month of action um, and learn more. So this month, alongside from the month of action, one of the demands that we have is um, to raise the issue of the Congressional Black Caucus um, to get them to oppose the U.S.-African Command and conduct hearings about AFRICOM's impact on the African continent with full participation of all the members of the U.S. and African civil society. Um, Because it's very important to understand that AFRICOM expanded under um, the Obama administration with full support of the Congressional Black Caucus. And then most recently, the H.R. 7311, the Countering Malign Russian Activities, in um, Africa Act that was just passed with unanimous support of every Democrat, um, it was introduced by a foreign, um, the House Foreign Affairs Committee chairman and Congressional Black Caucus member, Gregory Meeks. So it's very important to understand the role that the uh, Black leadership class here plays. Um, and then also what uh, Black Lives for Peace is also doing is just making sure that people understand the connections that Africa is no different from the 1033 program, which is also uh, budgeted under the Department of Defense that occupies our own communities um, for the same um, or similar reasons for, uh, you know, war crime, um, war drugs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And these can be seen as the same as the war terrorism and, you know, the the quote-unquote countering, um, yeah, the, the countering of malign activities. So you've got a um, you've got a month of action. People can get involved. You've got a website and you're asking for things or demanding, excuse me, demanding. As Paul Robeson said, never ask for something. You have a right to demand. Right. What is it that you're saying to the U.S. and to to NATO, to the U.S. empire? You have to we demand that you do X. And what is it? What's the demands so that people who are getting involved know what they're working towards the vision? Right. We have a we have a direct demand. the, to the CDC. We also demand the complete withdrawal of U.S. forces from Africa, demilitarization of the African continent, and also closure of U.S. spaces throughout the world. And, you know, the, the, line, the, the malign Russian activities, the Anti-Malign Russian Activities Act is, is, is incredibly hypocritical when, for example, you we talked about uh, Guinea and uh, all you have to do is look at the uh, the coup in Guinea from October 1st of, of last year where Colonel Mamadé Dumboya, being trained by AFRICOM, uh, 
met with the U.S. representative to Guinea on a Sunday, I believe, and then that next Monday, the next day, initiated a coup and overthrew the government. So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and and one of I think one of the struggles that um, that we run into in in circles that deal with the continent is um, understanding these coups, understanding these people's movements, quote unquote. And I think uh, with the Guinea uh, coup, especially, it is important to note that Africom was training, but it's also important to understand that um, it wasn't just in Guinea. Um, it's not unusual, really, mm-hmm. that Africa would be training the military in these countries because that speaks to um, the colonial grip um, on the continent by way of neocolonial leadership. But it's also important to note that they were also trained with the French. And if we look at what's happening in Mali, um, they, they kind of give credence to allow the French to align on the Mali border. And we know that France is also in Niger. So it's, France is now... a able to circle around and that is with you know that sort of that coup leadership that was trained by uh both france and Africom, and that's how we see the extension of nato uh, because it is you know the west trying to continue their grip on the continent another interesting article uh, orinoco tribune evo morales says quote there is a democratic revolution throughout all of Latin America and the Caribbean. And I think in light of what's happened of uh, uh, Gustavo Petro's speech at the UN and the upcoming elections with Lula, I think there's a lot of credibility to it. Your thoughts on what's happening in the Caribbean and uh, in Latin America and how Evo Morales fits into this. I think he's a very important figure in this. Your thoughts? Yes, I think that uh, Evo himself stands as a symbol for that sort of um leftward shift that we're seeing. Um, I can say he was there uh, with Chavez, and he's also, you know, seen this other side, you know, after. So he's able to recognize the shift that's happening. So I do think that he plays a very important role. Um, But I also, uh, we're witnessing this leftward shift, yes, certainly. But I think that Jamila Pierre today for the Black Agenda Report, um, she wrote, I think a really important intervention that certainly there's a lot of support and all eyes are on that shift that's happening to the left. But I think that support stops just short of Haiti. And I think that that's something that's really important to know because there are, and there is a lot of support because there is a lot happening in Latin America that we should be paying attention to. Um, the organizing, especially, I think this, the level of sophistication in organizing, and we see that in Colombia, uh, we see that in uh, Cuba, we see that in Venezuela, we see that certainly in Nicaragua and what Bolivia is accomplishing. But I think that when we speak about Latin America and the Caribbean and this shift, we, there's sort of a neglect um, to what's happening in Haiti uh, as both Latin American and Caribbean nation. Um, so I think that, yeah, Evo is right, certainly. There is a, a, a important shift that I think... Um, Really, really emphasizes, excuse me, um, the the CLAC call for the zone of peace uh, to sustain that emphasis. So, yeah. I've been asking this question of a number of guests when we have this conversation about the 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 global South. Understanding that imperial global hegemons don't go quietly into that long night. We have to be very vigilant and pay attention to what the U.S. response to all of this is going to be. 
Yes, certainly. Um, <laughs> certainly. They do not go into uh, quietly tonight. I think that um, the most recently, uh, the, the new head of Southcom had really laid out the some of the, the objectives. I know that Operation Trade Winds um, did occur. You are seeing the the U.S. is still, with, especially recently with the Southern Americas and excluding Cuba, Nicaragua, and uh, Venezuela, the uptick in, um, in propaganda against uh, Nicaragua and Cuba. Um, the U.S. is certainly uh, not going to let go, especially, uh, again, with the occupation of, of Haiti. Um, the, the U.S. is certainly trying to um, keep its grips on the region, it's, it's, and it's why I think that we should uh, not only just pay attention to what's happening in Haiti, but completely support um, the sovereignty, because it plays an essential role with how uh, the U.S. maneuvers in the rest the, the U.S. and the West maneuvers in the rest of the region, uh, especially in consideration to OAS and the core group and, and the role that they play um, in, in trying to overthrow uh, this leftward shift. Erica Ryan, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. New poll signals Americans are growing tired of support for Ukraine without diplomacy as the war against Russia drags on. A new poll from Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and Data for Progress suggests that many Americans are growing weary as the U.S. government continues its support of Ukraine in its war with Russia and want to see diplomatic efforts to end the war if aid is to continue. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist, Ted Rawl. As always, Ted, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So according to the poll conducted by the Quincy Institute, 57 percent of likely voters strongly or somewhat support the U.S. pursuing diplomatic negotiations as soon as possible to end the war in Ukraine even if it requires Ukraine making compromises with Russia. Just 32 percent of respondents are strongly or somewhat opposed to this. Your thoughts on this, Ted, and it's interesting for me, I'd like to know how many of those 57% of folks know that the U.S. has gotten in the way of negotiated settlements, that there have been, as far as I know, at least two instances where early in the process, Ukraine wanted to negotiate, but people like Boris Johnson went to Ukraine and told Zelensky, uh, the West will not support you doing this. Ted Rawl. Yeah, I suspect uh, very few of that 57%, or certainly the other 43%, are aware of the fact that uh, you know <laughs> the U.S. really does have this uh, history of interfering with uh, efforts to achieve peace. Uh, I remember a few, uh, probably about a decade ago, when there was talk about <clears throat> reunification talks <clears throat> between North and South Korea. 
And uh, the U.S. Uh, made very clear to South Korea that they couldn't support South Korea if they had peace, conducted any kind of peace negotiations with the North. Um, this is the same sort of thing. Uh, you know, the, I think in the early stages of a crisis uh, in a country like Ukraine that unfortunately most voters probably can't find on a map, there's but a natural they could, tendency. They couldn't find Ukraine on a map of Ukraine. <laughs> There is a there is a natural tendency on the part of, of American voters to sort of outsource, uh, you know, the, the decision making to their elected officials. Uh, that's just sort of the nature of our political culture here. But as this has dragged on now, uh, you know, going into uh, now going into the second half of a of a year, um, there's the American people are focused a little bit more on it. They notice. Uh, their own economic uh, problems. There, you know, there's a, a lot of issues that are going unaddressed, like homelessness and poverty, while money keeps getting uh, flowing into Ukraine. And I think common sense starts to prevail. People see, they look at the at the news. They they notice that the the map hasn't changed a hell of a lot. Uh, they it's pretty clear that there's really no world in which. Uh, you know, the Ukrainians are going to defeat the Russians and drive them out of their territory. So where, you know, the, the, this is like logically, well, you know, what do you do uh, when you have a conflict? Well, you try to bring it in uh, to a soft landing and you do that through peace talks. So it's only natural that uh, voters who are paying attention are now in favor of having these kinds of negotiations uh, probably, uh, you know, adding to the ignorance, of course, is the fact that there was the Minsk Accord that uh, has been ignored entirely by the Ukrainians uh, for eight years. And, uh, you know, th th that's, of course, a huge part of the reason that we are where we are here today. Ted, here's a paragraph that I think is very important on a lot of fronts. The poll also found 58 percent of Americans somewhat or strongly oppose the U.S. providing aid, Ukraine, uh, aid to Ukraine at current levels if there are higher gas prices and a higher cost of goods in the U.S., while just 33 percent somewhat or strongly support continuing aid if that occurs. I think that's important for two reasons. Number one, as the winter comes in and things are getting expensive, et cetera, et cetera, our economy's still going in the in the wrong direction. That shows that the numbers are going to go down. But if that's the case here, I can only imagine what's happening to the support in Europe. A person that you're, you know, regularly back and forth to France. So, what are your thoughts on those numbers showing that people don't want to feel pain, and how you think that's going to translate in the on the European continent where they're really feeling the pain? Yeah, no, I think that's certainly in here it, domestically in the states. That's going to it's going to be a factor. Um, you know, it, it comes down to you know why are we doing this? You know, we're 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 uh, we're hurting ourselves. We're hurting the economy. We're paying higher price, and you know, there's not going to be any noticeable effect uh, that's going to make anything different in any way. We're just throwing money down a rat hole. We just got out of a rat hole in Afghanistan and uh, we're, you know, here we go again. So I think uh, that that's going to be the opinion. That is the opinion increasingly here. And I'm starting to see uh, even liberal democratic uh, supporters of Ukraine who I know just starting to take another, take a hard look at this for the first time. And uh, you know they're they're getting a little more real in Europe. It's going to be worse, of course. I mean they're they're more far more dependent on uh, the Russian gas, natural gas that they're boycotting. Uh, the winters, uh, you know, are going to be 
and and the well, the, the other thing is that the Europeans are far more. Uh, they they feel like it's more reasonable to expect their government to act in order to alleviate their misery and pain. That's not something that Americans are particularly used to. Our social safety net is thin. Uh, what existence of it is tattered. Uh, you know, we're constantly told that we should be rugged individualists. Um, they don't believe any of that stuff in Europe. Uh, so, uh, you know, they're going to, they're going to definitely, and, and they're right as far as I'm concerned. So they're going to be very demanding. Um, you're going to see governments fall. It's going to be a lot of instability. Uh, you know, the center cannot hold. And I think that's something that, uh, you know, the, the, the Russian side of, of the equation understands completely that, you know, they just have to hold tight. And, uh, you know, the situation will move in their favor just by the passage of time. Trita Parsi, the executive vice president at Quincy Institute, who sponsored this poll, says, as long as it takes isn't a strategy. It's a recipe for years of disastrous and destructive war, conflict that will likely bring us no closer to the goal of securing a prosperous, independent Ukraine. U.S. leaders need to show their work, explain to the American people how you plan to use your considerable diplomatic leverage to bring this war to an end. Again, Trita Parsi. A couple of things there. One, diplomatic leverage to bring this war to an end. Well, the Department of State, which is supposed to be the diplomatic arm of our government, is the one fanning the flames. It, it, it is Blinken that is the warmonger here. I, I think he's being reined in by the Department of Defense. You got generals telling him, look, this is not a good idea. You know, no, we don't want to get into a nuclear war uh, with Russia. That's one point. And the other point is the ruling elite in either party, but since the Democrats are in control right now, there is a huge disconnect between the policy and the people. And Biden doesn't seem to be listening to those 57 percent of people saying it's time to bring this thing to a close. He's not listening now, uh, but he's going to have to listen after November or whoever his successor is going to be in, in as the actual likely Democratic nominee in 2024. And the Republicans in the House who will probably be controlling the House will have to uh, you know, listen. Uh, it, the the Public opinion is just going to continue to move in this direction. I think you know they can't keep playing this uh, you know Lucy pulling the football game uh, over and over and over with the American public saying, "Well, you know, just just stick with it. You know, we'll, we'll figure out a strategy later on." I mean, you know, that's how the U.S. lost its invade its occupation of South Vietnam. It's how it lost Afghanistan. It's how it lost Iraq. Uh, you know, I mean, the U.S. hasn't really been doing too well in its interventionism uh, in recent decades. And so, you know, at a certain point, it's like, well, we can tell that Ukraine is not going to win here and that the U.S. neither is willing to or maybe could uh, provide, you know, enough proxy weapons to defeat Russia. So we can all see where this is going, which is just a quagmire, a stalemate. And the difference between the U.S. and Russia is, you know, Russia's right there. Ukraine, they border Ukraine. They, they have to win. It's a, there's more, they have more skin in the game than, than the U.S. does. For the U.S., this is an optional 
uh, you know, war of proxy war of choice. And if we just get bored with this particular toy, we can drop it and turn our attention to something else. We don't, our people are not going to have sustained political will because we have no reason to. The other thing that I think it's interesting about reading the article or looking at the polls is the constant mention of diplomacy in that Americans, you know, some people say, well, we'll support it as long as there's there's enough diplomacy. An overwhelming number of people feel that there's not, not enough diplomacy. So there seems to be some expectation amongst voters that – Number one, this ends in diplomacy as all wars, even an unconditional surrender is a form of diplomacy. All wars end in diplomacy. There seems to be an expectation amongst voters that this will end in diplomacy. We need to do more, you know, and things of that nature. When in reality, you have an administration that's saying we have no interest in in, in diplomacy. And in fact, when there was a diplomatic solution, it is very clear through the person of Boris Johnson that the U.S. empire crushed any hopes of that. Ted. Well, there's there's definitely, uh, you know, a desire for diplomacy. I think basically from high school historical knowledge, everybody remembers the, you know, the surrender of of Germany and Japan at the end of World War II. Uh, They remember that that's how these wars used to unwind, you know, but but that's wars don't always end like that. Sometimes they just peter out. Uh, You know, for example, when Saddam was overthrown, uh, you know, his the resistance to the U.S. occupation just, you know, continued indefinitely until eventually the U.S. was forced to withdraw and turn tail. There was never any kind of satisfying peace agreement or armistice or anything. Uh, That's I think. um, But but that doesn't mean that that's not what the American people want. And it doesn't mean that the American people are wrong. I mean, really, you don't have to be an expert on the former Soviet Union to see that what needs to happen here uh, is sort of an acknowledgement of reality on the ground. And, you know, there was, for example, in the case of Crimea, some borders that were drawn in a haphazard way in the pre-1991 reality that did that became obsolete in the post-1991 reality, and that uh, some, some changes needed to be made. Um, and obviously, things have been very unstable in, uh, you know, as far as Ukraine goes for a long time. So none of this really comes as a big surprise to anyone who is paying attention. The voters are finally paying attention. And I think, uh, you know, they're going to draw the same conclusions as those of us who've been watching all along. I would push back on that slightly to say you talk about reality on the ground. That only factors into your equation or only not you personally, only factors into your analysis if you're getting accurate information on the reality on the ground. And th- and unfortunately, what we're finding out here, uh, for example, this uh, the the issue with the referendum, for example, all the language that we're getting in the West is that they were inappropriate, they were staged, they were you know just bad. And when but you look at the data, overwhelmingly, the folks want to secede to to, to Russia. So if you're not getting accurate information. You're, you you can't come to any realizations because your information, your data is flawed. That's totally true. It's, it's true. I mean, you know, I read those kinds of uh, allegations, assertions about like the referendums not being or being invalid or or being right. staged or whatever with, with very carefully and with great interest. And, you know, there's always stuff missing here. Like, for example, like evidence. People who, well, like the evidence <laughs> that, like, for example, the citizens of Donetsk and Luhansk 
have received hundreds of thousands of Russian passports. You know, the, the Russians didn't force them to take those passports. They applied for them and, and went and got them, and it filled out a lot of paperwork. I mean, that to me indicates a population that's very eager to be part of Russia rather than Ukraine, but it's a, it's, and it's not a small piece of evidence. Um, it, I think there's no question of that, uh, you know, that, that that's where those people, you know, want to be. And, uh, you know, and, and the West knows it. Ted Rawl, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The leftism of the Americas collapses at the door of Haitian sovereignty. It is an exhilarating time, according to our next guest. It is an exhilarating time for the leftists of the Americas. This past week at the 77th meeting of the United Nations General Assembly in New York, leader after Latin American leader made grand statements against U.S. and Western imperialism, the hypocrisy of U.S. foreign policy, the violations of human rights, and the West's assault on the sovereignty of smaller nations. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. She's an editor and contributor to Black Agenda Report, the Haiti America's co-coordinator of the Black Alliance for Peace and a Black Studies and Anthropology professor at UCLA and the author of this piece, Dr. Jamima Pierre, as always, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure to be here. You write, Colombia's brand new president, Gustavo Petro, made an impassioned plea against the genocidal war on drugs. Cuba's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Bruno Eduardo Rodriguez Paria, rejected the attacks on the sovereignty of China and Russia. Venezuela's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Carlos Faria, railed against the Western sanctions against Nicaragua, Cuba, Iran, and Russia. Honduran President Giamoro Castro demanded that the U.S. stop its attempts at destabilizing her country and strongly pushed against Western policies of intervention in the region. There were many, many others. There was a, a lot of dialogue going on this past week at the U.N., Dr. Pierre. Yes, indeed. And, you know, I, I was sitting here uh, watching everyone, um, especially uh, the, 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 the leftists that I follow on social media, um, just really be excited that there's this new wave happening, you know, this new wave of political um, leftism in Latin America. And now with the elections in Brazil and, and Lula's um, slated to win, we hope. Um, and so there's this really cel big celebration and how these people, these leaders are sticking it to, to the West and talking about sovereignty. And most of them really pushing for against the blockade against Cuba. Um, what was, but, but what really stood out for me <laughs> was the complete lack of attention to Haiti. Right, which has been making the news all over the place, right? As if you know, this place place of savagery and ultimate collapse. And none of these leaders, besides you know Cuba and um, Venezuela, and uh, who just you know simple 
you know, things, you know, statements like we need to support Haiti. But no one talked about the fact that Haiti was under complete imperial control and needed to have its sovereignty asserted. And that, to me, was the most disappointing part of watching all these leaders and also people celebrating, you know, the left ship in Latin America. Do you think that that it is a matter of maybe these leaders either just overlooking Haiti or possibly looking at it thinking, you know, there ain't no way the U.S. empire is going to give that up. So I guess we'll just have to throw up our head. I don't know. What do you think is because I don't believe that there's any malice here, but I do think that it is a, a terrible dynamic. What do you think or do you even know what the driving reason your, your suspicion? Well, I, I'm I'm not sure. I, I think one one key thing is when it comes to Haiti, people see Haiti as an abstraction, right? As like this, you know, this place um, where there was a revolution, Haitian people fought against um, slavery and colonialism and, and helped Simon Bolivar, you know, liberate the region and so on and so forth. And so I do think there's this thing that they don't see Haiti as real, like a place with real human beings, citizens of the world, with the same claims to rights and livelihood, like I say in the article, um, and as and and that they would uh, so that if they don't see the, this as a real place, then they don't recognize that there's a current denial of sovereignty. On the one, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, though, I do think some of these people know exactly what's going on. So, for example, Lula, right? Um, you know, when when the when the U.S. destabilized Haiti, got rid of the the U.S. Um, the Haitian president, the elected president. And through a coup d'etat, the U.S., France, and Canada, and because of their position on the Security Council, were able to get a militarized U.N. occupation force in Haiti. It was Lula's Brazil that actually led the military wing of this occupation. And, and what we're finding out is that George W. Bush promised Brazil a seat on the Security Council, right? And so they used Haiti as a, you know, as a stepping part to get there. And the same thing is happening now with AMLO, you know, the left's darling, right? The Mexican president, um, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, who everybody's thinking is so great because it's, you know, they're, um, he's nationalizing Mexico's lithium, right? And this is a great move for anti-imperialists. But he's also the co-pen holder with the, with the U.S. in the U.N. Security Council writing the policies of Haiti that actually keep Haiti under imperial tutelage. And so for me, these leaders must know what's going on. And I do think there's something deeply, and we don't want to acknowledge this, but I do think there's something deeply anti-Black and, and the, you know, um, uh, where people see Haitians as, as not real human beings and people see Haitians as people that need to be, that should not be allowed to rule themselves. So I think there's a combination of things going on. And then the, the Western leftists really don't take the time to figure out how to engage with Haiti because they don't, they don't want to, or they don't know how to. I think you're pointing out, uh, and you say in your piece, it is not lost on me that there is a deep-seated racist view of Haiti as an exceptional and therefore exceptionally difficult to engage because in a lot of the countries that you've just mentioned, uh, Mexico probably probably the exception, there are very large African groups in those countries, and those African groups are the most oppressed in those countries. So well, that's exactly. Yeah. Go sorry, ahead. Go no, ahead. no, I don't need. No, you got it. Go ahead. No, no. So that's exactly it. So and that's what, you know, Brazilian activists have been saying, you know, Lula's 
soldiers, Brazil soldiers went to Haiti and were violent and brutal and, you know, you know, shootouts, killing people. And then they took that training and took it right back to the favelas to kill black and brown Brazilians. Mm-hmm. Right. And so Haiti becomes a training ground for these really retrograde militarized responses to local population. And so that's what exactly what Mexico is doing, you know, with the help of the U.S., you know, Mexico's militarizing its own border. All of a sudden, the military is at the southern border in Chapatula in Mexico to stop immigrants, right? Because there's a huge number of Black immigrants now in Mexico, Haitians in particular, leaving Brazil, right? And so you see the connection to all of these. But I do think there is, like, these these um, these countries have large populations, major anti-Blackness in those populations, and then you see um, and then you see how they react towards Haiti. And it makes perfect sense then that there is this racism. And you can say that also for the CARICOM countries, the Caribbean countries, where there's always this when Haiti has this really exceptional uh, um, position, even among black led countries, because, you know, they've been so demonized and dehumanized that even black countries can't see them as as true human beings. And that to me is the most distressing and, and most really um, terrible part of this. And this is why the West can do whatever it wants to Haiti and get away with it. You laying this out just made me think about a statement from Dr. King's Where We Go From Here, Chaos or Community, where he talks about the danger of the white liberal. And he says that the white liberal wanted to spare the enslaved African the brutality of the lash, but was never championing the equality of that formerly enslaved African. And so when I would just take the white liberal out and replace the leftists in that analysis, and I think you can come up with the same analysis that the leftists are, quote unquote, progressive, but their their progressivism only goes so far. And so when it comes to dealing with the issue of ethnicity and race, that's where the buck stops. That's that's exactly it. And that's always been the problem we've had with the Marxists, the, the socialists, um, you know, you know, and, and so on. And, and the communists. Right. Part of the problem is like they, they just don't know how to deal with race or they don't want to. But there's also deep anti-blackness. Let me throw right in there right right there. That was one of the amazing things about Du Bois was that he was able to take his Marxist analysis and, and his labor analysis and then add his own experience, American racism to that analysis. Well, that's exactly it. And that's what really, you know, the, when you have the emergence of the Communist Party in the, in the early um, 20th century in the U.S., one of the key problems that the, the, the black communists had with the Communist Party um, in Russia was, the fact that inability to deal with race and blackness. And and that continues to be, you know, that was a lot of the problems. And I think they tried to fix it, right, in terms of thinking about how to deal with the race problem. But it is, it is, there's a there's a deep inability to deal with race. There's a there's a sense that class goes first and there's a sense that class and race don't go together. And there's a reality that they don't see that the reason Haiti is treated this way is both because they're black and because they don't want to be part of this Western imperial capitalist system. And the blackness really shapes, you know, um, you know, I'm convinced 
that the horrible and fake narratives that we're seeing now uh, about Haiti, they get traction because most people, including non-white people, view Haitian people as savages that should not be allowed to rule themselves. And I know that's a crude way to say it, but that's the reality. They might not say it out loud, but I think that's what's behind all of the, 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 the way that they can be convinced to believe these crazy narratives, including the Al Jazeera stories about gangs and so on and so forth, as opposed to like real protests that are happening in Haiti. I also think it has to do with the Africanness, if that's a word I can use, of the Haitians in that I think the the left movement in Central America and Latin America is uh, overall an indigenous movement, right? Very indigenous movement. That's how they and you can it see anyway. that. Yeah, I, mean, I see a lot of that in it. You know, I mean, I, th- 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 it's led by indigenous movement. When you look at the Haitian people, unlike the Americans here, who we got all mixed up and we're all different colors, they're very African uh, featured people, etc. And I think a lot of them look at these the Africans as well. They're African people that were brought here, but they're not really. They're just like almost like uh, the tenants or something that were brought here from another place, and they're not really people like us or in our group. You know what I'm saying? It's the fact that well, they're dehumanized. But, yeah, they're transplanted Africans from somewhere else that are here and they should go back there or something if they want to. You know, do you know what I'm getting at? And, and as such, they're yeah. less than human. Yeah, and it is. It is. It is. the Afri- it, I think the Africanness is really important because part of the one of the key reasons why the Haitian Revolution succeeded was that most of the Africans who participated in that revolution were not born in the Americas. They were recently arrived mm-hmm. Africans, right? They call them the Bosal, the Bosales, right? And they were the groups of people who knew what freedom was like on the African continent before they were transported. So I do think even in the Caribbean, within Black communities, Haiti from the beginning of the revolution was presented as these savages that went around killing whites, chopping heads, you know, because it had to be a destructive war to get their independence. And so they see them as like these savage Africans as like more African than the Africans themselves. And we know how the world, their views of of the African continent. And I want to just point out also though, because all the movements, I have to say this, in Latin America are not led by indigenous people. The Colombian movement in particular, that's a very pro, that's a very black and African movement, which is why most of the activists are getting killed in Colombia, right? The mm-hmm. indigenous and black folks coming together and work. And so I do think the, the black part of it, where you go to places like Buenaventura in, Afri- uh, in Colombia, you see people that look like, you know, you could be in like Accra, you know, mm-hmm. or, or Senegal, right? And so I do think there's something that linked to Africanness and the way that the world sees Africa as savage link really make the really uh, shapes the way that they see Africa, they see Haiti and they see Haitian actions. And they can't see Haitians as full human beings that actually would want um, um, would want uh, uh, would want to fight for self-determination and, and sovereignty. Dr. Jamima Pierre, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 